Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 40th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right? Audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Seth J. Gillahan, author of the book Mindful Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, A Simple Path to Healing, Hope and Peace. Seth is a practicing psychologist and one of the top popularisers of cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT. And in the book, he offers a fresh welcome approach for treating mental health issues that speak to our times, blending mindfulness and spirituality with CBT to effectively overcome negative thinking, achieve deep healing and truly attain lasting peace. It was great discussing the book with him and I hope you enjoy the episode. I found that in the book you were very frank and open about your experiences and how mindfulness CBT helped you. Do you feel that it was important for you to have gone through what you did so you can speak about it from the perspective of someone who's benefited from it yourself and not just from the point of view of someone that's helped others? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a pretty a pretty nuanced question because I do definitely believe that. I don't think I I would have come to this integration of mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy if I hadn't been through things myself and hadn't relied on some of these things in my own life. The complexity for me comes with, I think there's a real tendency that we have to want to, I mean, obviously to want to make sense of our lives and have our lives tell a story that makes sense. And it can be easy to tell a kind of just so story of Well, of course, I had to experience that because that was the only way that I could have come to whatever place I've come to. And it it can have a sort of everything happens for a reason, cliche feel to it. So I don't want to fall into that, but I do. It's hard for me to deny that the things that showed up in the book, but just the realizations that I had and ways that I was forced to grow through the struggles that I was having they just wouldn't have happened without those difficulties. So I I still fantasize when I look back to my life before this physical illness came along and I just marvel at the things I was able to do and and I imagine, oh what if you know none of this had ever happened and I could still do all those things. But obviously that's that life just doesn't exist. So I guess we just do the best we can with with where we end up. What I wanted to ask as well, uh, Seth, is that I wanted to talk about the specific chapter you have in the book, which is titled uh, Find Leverage, and the phrase Think, Act, Be, which I felt was used throughout the book. How do the three components of Think, Act, Be work together in giving us leverage? Yeah, that's something that I realized in in writing this, how much the leverage comes from attending to all of the aspects of our lives. So if we're just trying to train our minds in a certain way, that certainly can be helpful. But if we combine it with with changing our actions in ways that are helpful, and we do both of those things in the context of being present and open and, and really in our lives, then that's the most powerful approach. So for example, let's say that I'm I'm in a relationship and it's not going as well as I want it to. So one thing I could do is check out some of the thoughts I'm thinking, and maybe my thoughts are not helping in the relationship, like I'm blaming my partner for things that aren't fair, or I'm assuming they're thinking things about me that they're not actually thinking, you know, what we call mind reading in CBT. 
so I can attend to those things. But those thoughts, the thoughts that I'm thinking are going to affect the things that I do. And so if I can, can also change my actions, like if I can look for ways to be more supportive of my partner, to make her life a little easier, then that could also change the way that I think about her and think about the relationship. And then all those things, I can engage a kind of like a different level of attention and openness in the relationship. And that for me is the B component or what we sometimes think of as the mindfulness dimension. So if things are difficult in the relationship, and I've certainly done this, I can think, oh, this is terrible. This shouldn't be happening. Why do we have to deal with this? This is such a drag. But then that just, you know, compounds the problem, those thoughts about the difficulty that we're having. So if I can think instead, all right, I don't love this, but even healthy relationships have their rough patches. If I can accept that, all right, this is what's happening right now. It's up to us to work through it. And that's kind of what happens in relationships. Then that openness and that willingness to be in the relationship that I have and not the relationship that I imagine that I need or wish that I had, then you know we're going to be stronger for it. Within the chapter, you mentioned the power of the mind. And you say a very powerful phrase, actually, which stuck out to me. And that is, if we don't recognize our thoughts for what they are and treat them accordingly, we'll live in a false reality of what our minds create. Does that tie into the mindfulness awareness of what you were just mentioning just now as well, would you say? Yes. Yeah, that's another, I think, really important intersection of mindfulness and more traditional CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Because a lot of the time, we don't even realize that we're having thoughts. We're living our lives based on all the assumptions and interpretations and core beliefs that we carry without realizing how much work our minds are doing to construct our reality. It feels like we're just receiving things as they are, like that person's selfish. This person needs to treat me better. I should be more successful. Those are all just stories the mind makes up, but we can act as if, yeah, that's what's happening. I'm getting a raw deal or you know, people are being unfair. And then if we live as if that's true, then it's going to affect our relationships. It's going to affect our well-being. But if we can use mindful awareness to notice what is my mind up to? What is it telling me? What's the kind of story that's being constructed the tale that my mind is spinning about about my life and just noticing those things goes a long way to helping us to see through thoughts that aren't helpful so we don't even necessarily have to go through a whole like well what's the evidence for this thought what's the evidence against it that can be helpful to do at times but a lot of the mileage that we get out of the mindful cbt approach is just noticing oh wait that's a thought maybe it's true maybe it's not. And then automatically I have more freedom and flexibility from that point forward. And speaking of leverage as well, you talk about willpower and how it relies on brute force to help us reach our goals. How can we find leverage when it comes to willpower as well, would you say? One of the metaphors that I use is 
you had a yard covered in leaves and you had to gather up the leaves, you could do that with a rake, which would be you know fairly effective, or you could do it with your hands. And I think in the book, I use a snow shovel or snow blower metaphor. And you can do the leaves with your hands, but it's going to be a lot of work and a real drag, and you might give up at some point. So I think in our lives, we often we often think, I just have to make myself do it. I just have to force myself to do it, to be more disciplined, to be more consistent. I need to be hard on myself and just sort of, you know, browbeat myself into it. But I think what we end up doing is accepting this fiction about ourselves, which is that there's something deficient about us. Like I need to be a better person. I need to do better. I need to work on myself. But what if we don't really need to work on ourselves in that way? Because it's often a catch-22. It's like, okay, I need to be a more disciplined person in order to be more disciplined. But where do you start? Like, I need to be a better person in order to become a better person. But maybe that's not true. Maybe what you need is just better tools. You know, it's not a personal failing if you can't gather leaves by hand. That's just not how we're designed. In the same way, it's not a personal failing that your willpower isn't enough. It just means you need more tools. And, and that, I think, is what, what CBT and, and mindfulness are about, is, is working with our natures in a way that, that gives us that leverage so we're not just trying to, trying to lift things with our own strength, but we're, we're having the, the tools that we need. Absolutely. And when it comes to this, you'd have to have a level of just consistency, isn't it? Because I, f- I feel as though sometimes people put themselves under far too much pressure to implement some sort of change when really if you perhaps just start small and keep on going along the way, you might turn around in a year's time and be like, oh, wow, this is where I've come just from consistently doing this said action over a course of time instead of putting yourself under pressure to feel as though, oh, I have to be further along, you know? Yeah, and that, that's a great example, NG, the principle of starting small or of just taking small steps and breaking things down. Because I think we do have this idea that I can't just take a small step. That's so negligible. That's like nothing. And that would be sort of like a demonstration of, of weakness or even failure. But everything that we, everything big thing that we do, we do in small steps. And I also think of things that are essential like breathing and, you know, not taking a single breath is no big deal, but the only way to to breathe to support your life is to take single breaths one after the other. So we can only do the big thing by doing the small thing. That was a very good analogy that you mentioned in the book as well, actually, because that's one thing that people don't pay attention to. Like breathing is is great, but not breathing. (laughs) That's a big deal. We have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) But we discount it, you know, the same with like people who are depressed, for example, we say like, you know, just get a shower that day. But we might think like, oh, I mean, a shower, that's nothing. That's like anybody should be able to take a shower. But never taking a shower is a big deal. Like that's a problem. So you can only do these things one thing at a time. I feel as though your book has come at the perfect time, actually, because it tends to be January or just the new year when people try to implement changes in their life. And you do mention in the book a lot of techniques in which mindfulness CBT 
can help the reader or listener. And when it came to your experience, what would you say was the catalyst for you implementing it within your life as well? There have been a number of chapters where these things, these practices have been helpful. The one that really stands out, you know, the kind of pivotal one for me was when I, I mean, I really realized how depressed I was. I'd had this chronic health condition for a couple of years and, you know, I just had a kind of slow descent into feeling worse, having less energy, sleeping poorly. And then one day in my clinical office, I actually took a depression questionnaire. I was like, well, you know, how many symptoms of depression do I have? Because they don't necessarily announce themselves as depression. You know, it seems like I don't have as much energy. I'm not sleeping as well. I'm not as interested in things as I used to be. I couldn't read a book. You know, these books are supposed to be great. And I'm a big reader. I sit down and be like, ugh, this book has like, no, there's no stickiness to it. You know, it's like, like reading a, like a chemistry textbook or something, but less interesting than that. So it was that, that awareness. And I realized like, oh, wow, like I am really not in a good place right now, which I knew, but there was something about seeing the symptoms and recognizing like, wow, I'm in a major depressive episode of moderate severity. So I realized like, wow, it shouldn't have been a surprise the stress I was under, the limitations that I was experiencing, the way my life had shrunk because of these physical limitations and you know, not exercising, not getting together with friends, not even really talking with my family because of one of the main symptoms was, was vocal limitations. So I realized I needed to do actual you know, CBT work. I was actually reading a book around that time, Rachel Hershenberg, I think is her name, something like that. I'm sorry, Rachel. I'm not getting your name exactly right, maybe, but she'd written a great book on behavioral activation for depression. And I interviewed her, you know, I knew a lot about the treatment. It was a, a reminder of, all right, this is a very effective approach. And so, so that's what I did. Um, I cut out activities that weren't really rewarding, like a lot of wasted time that I was spending on social media. It wasn't rewarding to me. And, and the main thing in which I write about in the, in the book is I built a garden and spent a lot of time investing my energy and my effort and in doing that and other things, you know, trying to see friends a bit more. And I was just thinking about that today, about how I have such a, a feeling of intimacy with my garden. I think that was a lot of, that's a lot of the reason is that it was, I guess it was kind of there for me at a, at a really difficult time and helped to, to change my experience and pull me out of that depression. I mean, cause I was really, I really wanted to die. There were many, many times where I just thought like, I just want to die. There's a part of me that believed my family would be better off without me. I thought, you know, I would just cry and think, God, my, my kids, like they deserve better, a better dad, you know, making life harder for my, for my wife. I knew because of my therapy background that those thoughts didn't make sense, but they, they sure felt true at the time. There, actually, there was a history of suicide in my own family. My dad's dad killed himself. So I knew that that was an awful experience for family members to go through and would ripple through generations. Thank God. I didn't, but it was easy to understand why people do. You were very honest in your book and it made me understand how much it worked for you, especially when I think about, it was remarkable how a part of mindfulness CBT is coming back to self, doing the things which originally you enjoyed doing. And when I was listening to it, 
I found the same thing in terms of whenever I had been going through something in a lot of cases I'd already stopped doing a lot of the things that I did enjoy doing whether it be exercise meeting with friends reading or listening to audiobooks all of a sudden I've been bogged down with work and I've realized oh I haven't I haven't even done that in such a long time you know so even listening to um, your audiobook and you speaking frankly about the things that you were talking about when you started gardening and I think you mentioned swimming as well didn't you oh yeah yep yeah you mentioned swimming as well it resonated with me and even just you talking about the relationship between us and our phones right yeah the amount of times we spend on it social media and and etc it's almost as if it's a slot machine so we want to receive some sort of reward by scrolling on this said apple and one thing that people don't realize as well let me not say people I didn't realize myself is that I tend to go on a lot of news websites often and I'll just be scrolling through articles. It's almost as if I'm looking for the correct one to pick and I'm like, oh, this is the one that's excited me. It's no different to checking a social media app essentially because within that motion, you're mindlessly just scrolling through. I did not think of it in that way until I'd listened to your audiobook actually. So it did make me double take on that as well. Mm. It's such an important point that you bring up, NG, that we we often don't really look at the landscape of our lives and think about, am I getting the types of nutrients that I need? Like uh, I talk about the you know with the gardening metaphor of plants, you know they have care instructions and and we all have care instructions. Well, they're not explicit, but but there are things that we need, and it's easy to fall into certain patterns that are not helpful to us, but not realize it. Maybe our friends. A couple of friends move away and suddenly we have less you know, social contact, but we don't recognize how that's affecting us, how we're not getting the that social stimulation and connection that we need. Or as you were suggesting, maybe we're working so much that then we're cutting out other things in our lives that we need and it's all work and no play. So what we need to stay well mentally, emotionally, spiritually is a balance of things that are fun and that are meaningful, that are enjoyable, and that give us a sense of accomplishment. So um, that, that's an easy thing all of us can do is just look, even just look at our calendar and ask, you know, am I getting a mix of things I like to do and things that I need to do? And if we're not, then we can try to correct that balance. And it's probably going to lift our mood because there are probably things we're not doing. Like you were saying, you're like, oh, I haven't done that thing in a while. And we almost like forget how much we enjoy it and how much it brings to us. Seth, you also talk about releasing control, which, dare I say, there's an element of stoicism behind it. Would you agree? For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stoicism in cognitive therapy, especially. And I was amazed, you know, going back and and reading, well, I mean, probably for the first time, for the most part, reading stoicism, um, you know, some of the greatest hits, like, I think it's called Enchiridion. I think that's Epictetus. And, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius's what are his called? Meditations? Yes. And I was just amazed how much 
it's not just the cognitive part, not just about how we work with our thoughts, but choosing right actions and also doing them in the present, that focusing our attention in the moment on what we can actually control. It's not surprising in a way, but it's it's also a little bit mind-blowing to, you know, to read these texts that are about 2,000 years old and like, oh, there it is. You know, this is the stuff that it's like cutting edge research now and, you know, mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and there it was, these ancient Greeks and Romans were thinking and writing about the same things because that's human nature. And you do mention in the later chapters many other things that one can do within their own life as well, which I do think the listener to this podcast should obviously listen to your book so they can find out what they are. (laughs) But the last thing I actually wanted to ask you is you mentioned some patients that you did deal with and their experiences and how mindfulness CBT helped them as well. How did their experiences help you in terms of just applying it in your own life? Yeah, it was so interesting during this period of my life when I was still doing full-time therapy and was struggling so much physically and emotionally. And I think one thing that really helped me was seeing repeatedly the the cognitive behavioral therapy and the, the practice in mindfulness, it really is helping people to make significant changes in their lives. And it's helping them to be less depressed, to, to face their anxiety, to to love themselves more. So there's a, you know, early in the book, I, I tell the story of Paul not his real name, who was really struggling with, you know, self-hatred and feeling like he had failed his kids. And, you know, there was that kind of irony that here I was like really, you know, hating myself in my private life and feeling like I was failing my kids. And he had a, a real breakthrough that was one of the most profound moments of therapy that I have been a part of, where after a long time of really just kind of loathing himself. He kind of shocked me one day with with his willingness to actually show love for himself. And that was, I don't think I made the connection at the time, but, but looking back, I was like, oh my goodness, there's a, you know, there is something deeply ironic there about helping people to, you know, discover that profound love for themselves, even while I'm not feeling it at all. But seeing people's lives change and improve, I think, I mean, it continues to inspire me and and remind me that this is worthwhile work as a therapist and it's worthwhile to do that same work with ourselves. That was Seth J. Gillahan author of the book Mindful Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, A Simple Path to Healing, Hope and Peace. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Seth for coming on the podcast, and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.